0: Appamada's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. You know, we, uh, Peg and I, have each uh, these two. Uh, one-hour Dharma talks, although we have uh, more time uh, for inquiry each day, each of us uh, offering time um, for us to to meet and connect in our warm Appa fashion. But these, uh, the Dharma talks are, you know, it's a full hour, so (laughs) I say, you know, buckle up. because, you know, this in some ways is my one, one shot at you in, in terms of just teaching. Um, but despite how it might, might sound, my intention isn't to teach you something. Uh, I am offering you an invitation to go with me as we explore the territory of silent illumination is especially as taught by uh, Gyogu in this recent commentary that you have as your your resource. so in many ways, these talks are not, well, well, they're they're less like lectures in which knowledge is gonna be imparted. And some of you know this, but it's important to remember And they're more like a walk together through my own practice mind and body. And I have to confess that it reflects more about how I have met these teachings and practices than anything else. But that's the function of the teacher if you, once we inhabit those those roles is to offer how these teachings are moving through and what that might invite from you. And all of you know that I like to weave things together and to see what that weaving creates as if it's a work, uh, an artwork in progress and its shape and texture and color, its scent and its flavor. and, And you also know that I'm a curator and like In curation, there's a display um, so that we can experience and notice what the impact of this invitation uh, offers and what emerges from this invitation. So this is my invitation to join me on this tour. I want to start with just a few words from Hongji as translated by Hugo, because this is the foundational text uh, that we're using. And so I'm reading from page 123. You, you don't have to go to it, but I'm just going to read a few words, which is the first little segment uh, in, in the text uh, translating Ji. And these are just a few of the words. It's not the entire bit. This vacant and open field is intrinsically present from the very beginning. This vacant and open field is intrinsically present from the very beginning. We'll spend a good bit of time on just that line. And then he speaks some about practice and how the natural, you'll arrive at a place that is clear and pure, perfect and bright, totally empty without any image, resplendent and outstanding. And it does not rely on anything. This is the kind of language that he speaks about. And as he goes through it, he reaches a point towards the end of this segment where he says, advancing in such a way, we're able to take up the responsibility of helping sentient beings with pure intent as if you were sitting in perfect silence. So this weaving together of our practice in the service of helping sentient beings is really crucial to our Appa way of understanding things. And Peg will take this much, much further tomorrow. As for the wondrous activity of leisurely entering the world, I love that, leisurely entering the world, it is something you must investigate in this fashion. So this is the beginning of our investigation. In fact, there was a a quote that I had pulled from uh, Gigo yesterday, but um, one of you wrote to me this morning and asked for it to be um, reflected on more fully. And it's appropriate to do so because it it begins uh, the way I'd like to begin today, and the quotation is illumination refers to the wondrous activity of selfless wisdom that in Buddhism is none other than compassion. Just as wisdom and compassion are inseparable, so are silence and illumination. They're two aspects of our naturally awakened Buddha nature within. So through my talk today, I hope that we'll begin to see how wisdom and compassion reflect each other, how illumination and silence are, in some ways, just one, two ways of looking at one, one thing, although they're spoken about separately. The <clears throat> illumination, the wisdom, helps us see very clearly. That clear seeing helps us meet the world in which there is everyday human suffering. And so our heart's naturally open to that suffering that we see. That's compassion. A desire to meet the suffering with some skill. That allows us to be more intimate, closer with each moment and each person, each thing. And that intimacy helps us see more deeply if we stay and have the capacity to remain connected. Which allows for more wisdom. Which invites increased intimacy, which is more compassion, so you see they're actually working together as if they were two. But it's just the natural awakened Buddha nature within. I'm going to show you something that will, uh, I know for some of you, uh, almost immediately uh, suggest that you need to take notes, but don't worry about it. I'm going to screen share something just to give you um, uh, a little map. That come through okay? Yeah. Putting on the robe of silent illumination, and there's the the quote. We can send this out to you if you want. It's not necessary. There's the quote that I just mentioned, and the three highlighted things are some uh, markers along the way that we're going to speak about today. And these are ones that that come from um, uh, Guigo's actual way of speaking about sign elimination. The foundational teaching that you're already enlightened, that we are already enlightened. And through our practice of experiencing and deep embodiment, we come to know this. The feeling tones that we're encouraging in practice that uh, Peg spoke about and that we, we continue to speak about. Are those qualities of contentment where we settle and begin to rest, so our interest can open, with some confidence in the first one that enlightenment is our heritage and foundation, and with some determination because things can be challenging at times, or at least unclear. And then the third broad area is these facets of the jewel of silent illumination, or what I sometimes call the strands in the thread of weaving silent illumination of a concentrated mind, a unified mind, and no mind or no self. These are basically the things that uh, we'll be covering today. And I thought if we look at the rogue chant, which all of you did earlier, we see how it's spoken about and expressed through that chant. Vast is the robe of liberation. We start with a phrase that suggests that freedom is where we rest. We're already free. Vast is the robe of liberation. A formless field of benefaction. What we rest in is an inexplicable um, robe, a uh, field of contentment of bright interest and confidence and determination. These are the practice tones, the feeling tones, that wearing the universal teaching, embodiment, experiencing, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being, which is this combination of wisdom and compassion. So our verse of the robe expresses everything that we're about to uh reflect on and helps us understand uh, the way that silent elimination weaves and this uh, dynamic function of wisdom and compassion <clears throat> Okay, once I share something, I sometimes lose other things, but they're returning. So let's start with uh, Hugo's first proposition that we are already enlightened. Actually, when he writes about it, he says, you are already enlightened. But I prefer to speak about it as, as the collective. The Chan tradition, which we know in Soto Zen also, um, doesn't really talk about practice and steps and stages so much. Uh, you know, that was Dogen's primary um, message, that practice enlightenment was, was one. We don't practice to gain enlightenment. Uh, practice is an expression of our innate wakefulness. And through that expression and confidence, through the qualities I just spoke about, it opens. It's the central teaching in Chan and the central teaching in Silent Illumination that we are intrinsically awake. And our fundamental awareness, our natural mind, is originally without the kind of uh, struggles and difficulties that we, that we normally experience. Now, this is difficult to understand for us in everyday life because we think if we're intrinsically awake, but we look at our personality and our behaviors, it's like, well, that doesn't feel like intrinsically awake to me because this isn't talking about personality. It says it's, our, it's nature, the nature of silent illumination of awakening is without divisions and stages. So we're talking about a very big heart, a very big mind that Uh, Is spoken about in our robe chant. Actually, when we, from the very beginning in the morning after we sit, and I'll begin a little bit of weaving with our um, some of our practices that we're more familiar with, as we reflect on on these practices in silent illumination. Here's um, a beautiful piece from uh, the. Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, from Suzuki Roshi. He said, we say big mind, or small mind, or Buddha mind, or Zen mind, but these words mean something, you know, but something we cannot and should not try to understand in terms of experience. We talk about enlightenment experience, but it's not some experience we will have in terms of good or bad, time or space, past or present, it is experience or consciousness beyond those distinctions or feelings. So we should not ask, what is enlightenment experience? That kind of question means you don't know what Zen experience is. So remember, and we're talking about experiencing, and this is what Suzuki Roshi is saying, it isn't a thing, He goes on, enlightenment cannot be asked for in your ordinary way of thinking. When you're not involved in this way of thinking, you have some chance of understanding what Zen experience is. I would say what silent illumination really is. What's being pointed to in this big, big mind. You know, if our mind's nature, our mind and heart, If if the nature was not already free, that would imply that we could become enlightenment only after we practice, which isn't the teaching. If it were possible to gain something called enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, if it was possible to gain something through practice, then it would be possible to lose it because it would be a conditioned phenomena that we could create, and anything created is subject to impermanence and and decay. But we're talking about the unconditioned, uncontrived nature of this uh, natural awakened mind. And silent illumination is opening to the mind beyond all concepts and outside of conditions, as Suzuki Roshi was talking about. And it's opening to a space in which everything is held, from which everything arises and into which everything passes away, which is not born and does not die. A formless field of benefaction. Suzuki Roshi goes on, he says, the big mind in which we must have confidence, see there's our confidence, is not something which you, can experience objectively, objectively. It's something which is always with you, always on your side. Your eyes are on your side, but you can't see your eyes. And your eyes cannot see themselves. Eyes only see things outside, objective things. If you reflect on yourself, that self is not your true self anymore. You cannot project yourself as some objective thing to think about, or well, we do. The mind which is always on your side. And this is what silent illumination is pointing to. The mind which is always on your side is not just your mind. It is universal mind. Always the same, not different from another's mind. It's Zen mind. It is big, big mind. This mind is whatever you see. Your true mind is always with whatever you see. Although you don't know your own mind, it is there. At the very moment you see something, it's there. This is very interesting. Your mind is always with the things you observe. So you see, this mind is at the same time, everything. Last evening, I looked in, in this direction from where I'm sitting now, and I could often see about 60 miles away the, away the island of Oahu. You can see the outline of Diamond Head sometimes, the whole island other time. But I couldn't see it yesterday. There was too much haze in the air, and there was a very, very big uh, winter surf, and there was a lot of uh, mist and things, and it, this entire island had disappeared but I know it's there. I had confidence that it was there, but I couldn't see it. Isn't that how it is? You have this sense of, I've seen it before. (laughs) I know it's there, but I can't quite see it. And that's very objective. I'm over here. It's over there. It's me seeing a thing. Last evening and then this morning, uh, I get up in the very, uh, very uh, chilly here. (laughs) I won't tell you what the temperature is because you'd laugh, but and it took a warm shower which means the window uh the the mirror is very fogged so i could kind of see myself now i'm looking at myself i'm not looking at something else but i couldn't really make myself out but i know it's me i think but it's obscured a little bit so that's now looking a little deeper that's looking at me in a reflection and sometimes i can see clearly and sometimes i can't quite see so clearly. But then I just turned and looked out the window. And then that, silence, stillness. I'd forgotten the mirror, forgotten myself. It was the most beautiful lavender and pink In the dim, dim light, a cardinal had come to the bird feeder. There was a breeze. Everything was one experiencing. But it didn't require me standing there and having a self. So that's the movement from a concentrated mind to a unified mind to this no self, no mind, in a very ordinary, ordinary way. I hope you get a feel for what we're talking about here when we say caught in the self-centered dream only suffering you know ordinary thinking and feeling enchanted by all the contents of our awareness and our constructs we get ordinary suffering holding to self-centered thoughts exactly the dream know determined to try to work everything out within the ordinary enchantment of our personalities and, and feelings and thoughts we just repeat the dream each moment life as it is the only teacher each moment life as it is big mind on our side always with us always demonstrating what is Being just this moment, compassion's way, silent, illumination, wise, compassionate. Each moment unfolds as a gift. This is this is silent illumination. We we practice it all the time. Like Hugo says, Buddha nature, our true nature is simply freedom. Our true nature is simply freedom. It's not a thing. If it were, then it would have a before and after. It would be subject to birth and death. And it would be either permanent or impermanent. But Buddha-nature is inconceivable. And listen to this statement, he says next. This inconceivability is that right here and right now, you are free. That's oddly what seems the most inconceivable. The inconceivability is that right here and right now, we are free. Buddha nature is inconceivable. Some of you may remember that there's a place in the Vimalakirti Sutra, which many of us have studied. I think Laurie was teaching it also recently. There's this a place in which um, all the Bodhisattvas are asking, or, or Manjushri asks, what's what's the entry into this wakeful space? And all the um, Bodhisattvas and, and all the senior, you know, they, they talk about what it means and Manjushri talks about what it means and they finally turn to Vimalakirti and ask about this inconceivable entry into the awakened mind. And his response is, What is often called a thunderous silence it's the most important silence in all of buddhism and this is the silence of silent illumination dropping what we cling to opening into everything suzuki roshi said i've discovered that it's necessary absolutely necessary to believe in nothing that is we have to believe in something that has no form and color Something which exists before all forms and colors appear. This is a very important point. No matter what God or doctrine you believe in, if you become attached to it, your belief will be based more or less on a self-centered idea. You'll be involved in idealistic practice. Constantly seeking to actualize your ideal. And you'll have no time for composure. This contentment and composure that Peg started us with. But if you're always prepared to accept everything we see as something appearing from nothing, knowing that there is some reason why a phenomenal existence of such and such form and color, then at that moment, you'll have perfect composure. And I think that word composure that he speaks about includes all those flavors of contentment. Because you think we sit, you know, to embody composure even when we don't feel composed. <laughs> so that we can touch contentment, interest, confidence, determination, it's through our body, through experiencing. Not an experience, that's an object, through the activity of experiencing. So he says it's absolutely necessary to believe in nothing, not attach. But he says, I do not mean voidness. There is something, but that something is something which is always prepared for taking some particular form. This is called Buddha nature, or Buddha. When this existence is personified, like you, when this existence is personified, we call it Buddha. When we understand it as the ultimate truth, we call it dharma. And when we accept the truth and act as part of the Buddha, we call ourselves Sangha. But even though there are three Buddha forms, it is one existence which has no form or color. It's always ready to take any form or color. And then he says in his classical way, this is not just theory. This is not just teaching Buddhism. This is absolutely necessary understanding of our life. And this is silent illumination. The dynamic function of boundless silence and illuminated clarity. This is wisdom and compassion. Now the image that, uh, or analogy that uh, Yogi uses in his book is like, uh, simply like a room, like the room you're in. We're all in our individual rooms, you know. Uh, and a room is naturally spacious. There is the, whatever the space is in that room, in your room, where you are. And he says, then we organize the furniture in the room. And we can try to, no matter how we organize the furniture, it actually doesn't affect the intrinsic spaciousness we can put up walls and we can divide the room, but those are, you know, temporary. And we can make the room clean or we can make the room messy. It won't affect the natural spaciousness. And mind is also intrinsically spacious. And we get caught up in our desires and our aversions. and our true nature is not actually affected by our vexations we're inherently free that spaciousness is who we are. Now most of us uh, I think all of us really in the beginning it's necessary we start with these things which I call manager practices. We want a better room with better furniture arranged more beautifully, you know anxiously held in place and hoping that it'll make us happy and you know the cat won't scratch it or the dog won't chew it up or we won't spill red wine on it, or whatever, you know. that's This is my experience, at least. This is the kind of way that we actually approach practice. But these attempts to, of improvements of the contents of our awareness, if I can just think like a Buddha or whatever, and our endless work towards something better, or to get away from something we think is bad, hoping to arrive somewhere else that's the promised land, you know, this is where we all begin. This is the, our manager striving. And it's useful to do it, at least in wholesome ways, so that we can burn through it. And in the Chan tradition that we're studying here, practice is not about producing enlightenment. You might wonder, well then, why am I practicing? Why am I doing all this? <clears throat> well, by not attaching to your thoughts and feelings, you're no longer distracted by rearranging the furniture, so to speak. And once your mind becomes more clear, instead of fixating on the chairs and the tables and the, all that, you you're open to the spaciousness. You remember the spaciousness of the room. Then you can let the furniture be rearranged if you want to. But here's the key. But not for yourself. For the benefit of others in the room. And that's the Bodhisattva turn. We don't have to clear up the cloudy sky. We just have to not attach or identify with the clouds i I don't have to clear up the clouds so i can see oahu i just have to remember it's there and not attached to the, the clouds we'll always have thoughts and feelings these contents they'll always move through our mind and our heart but we can rest in foundational awareness itself which is always there always on our side as Suzuki roshi said effortlessly reflecting everything Remember, the luminous mirror wisdom, which is untouched by what it reflects. When we are awakened, Buddha nature expresses itself as wisdom. When we're deluded, it it appears as ignorance. Wait, what? Listen to that. When we are awakened, Buddha nature expresses itself as wisdom. That, you get, right? When we're deluded... Buddha-nature expresses itself, appears as ignorance. We must awaken to who we are in order to embody the truth of Buddha-nature amid the complexities of our life. We think that wisdom is Buddha-nature and ignorance is not Buddha-nature. There is only Buddha-nature which flows at the heart of everything and everyone, silently. This is what's illuminated. Silent illumination is awakening that rests on a playful interdependence of opposites. Wisdom, compassion. Stillness, activity. Quiescence, wakefulness. Essence and function. Yoga speaks of our... um, Stuckness, I love the word he uses, he calls these self-referential polarizations. We get stuck on these, like in the Shenzhen Ming, you know, which talks about this quite well, about self-referential polarizations. And the the Buddha struggled with these in his own practice. And because he experienced what life was like as an indulged prince, and as an ascetic yogi, You know, he tried on polarizations. And what did he wake up to? The middle way, ultimately. That story we don't need to to go into. You know, good and bad conditions, as we ordinarily perceive them, are projections of our fears and desires. And so when we speak about, uh, I'd like to go beyond good and bad, uh, like we, we, we see in some of these teachings, we're not talking about transcending <clears throat> uh, thought and feeling or a frail embodiment or going beyond morality or beyond dualism. The middle way is a broad and patient way of living that accepts conditions, whatever they are, without fear and struggle. In other words, you don't jump to one place or another, we maintain this broad, open, patient field that knows how to act accordingly. This is the empty field. This is the middle way. And every moment then can arrive fresh and free. In fact, Aguio uh, uh, actually calls this freshness. That's another term I love that he uses. This freshness in which there is only experiencing itself which is vibrant, not abiding anywhere, and lacks words and language to describe it. As I turned and looked out the window this morning, It's, it's like, you know, when we have to refresh the computer, it's basically kind of like a starting over. What if every single second is a refreshment? Because we're not clinging to the past, grasping for the future, not really stuck in the present. There's just an ongoing refreshing Refreshing. When a car, you know, passes your house, maybe wherever you are, you hear dogs bark in the neighborhood. If there's no attachment to the sounds, even though you hear them and no narrative that you generate about Lee, the dog on dog, you know, about the perceptions and sensations, then the next moment is fresh. It's unclouded by what just passed through. There's no self-referential net narration, no self-referential polarization. I am over here, the noisy uh, dump truck is over there. There's no story with me at the center. And of course we can tr- twist the moment with these kind of projections and all of our entanglements. Uh, and most of that we do out of habit and our ordinary awareness. But it's it's just equally possible to accept a moment just as it is. With curiosity and a willingness. And when we accept the moment as it is, all previous moments dissolve. We're not using our present polarization to prove something about, yeah, you know, that. And there's only now. Life is... Utterly redeemable and perfect moment after moment, aside from these polarizing conditions, just experiencing, just freshness, just vivid, wakeful, relaxed, focused awareness, even if what's vivid might be a grief. And what we're awake to is some difficulty we need to solve or we're relaxed in the face of some pain or discomfort and our focused awareness is skillful it doesn't mean it's all happiness but we can have freshness in the face of each moment because each moment needs to be cared for and that's buddha nature that is our nature i won't go into it because we don't really have the time but i was also sort of on my own playing with going through the whole Heart Sutra as if it was a teaching on silent illumination. I'll give you a tiny example from what we've just said. When you read form is boundlessness, boundlessness is form. Awakening is expressed in your life as it takes form in every moment. Each moment is a complete expression of boundlessness. It says, Shariputra, boundlessness is the nature of all things. That's silent elimination is a way to enter the reality of all things. And then it goes through that list, you know, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. The ultimate way to practice silent elimination is to sit without dependence and attachment to any of these. And yet experiencing them all as one opening. Free from confusion, those who lead all to liberation embody profound serenity. All those in the past, present, and future who realize wisdom beyond wisdom. You sit without abiding anywhere, without fabricating anything, or falling into a stupor. You neither enter into meditative absorption, nor give rise to scattered thoughts. And every moment, mind is just wakeful and still clear without delusion. So you could go through the whole uh, Heart Sutra and see, oh, that's what's being pointed to. What's, uh, you know, all those rugs are pulled out. What's left? Silence and wakefulness. When Dogen said the way is perfect and all pervading, how could it be contingent upon practice and realization? The Dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled. You see, he's saying the same thing. What need is there for concentrated effort? The whole body is beyond the world's dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It's never apart from one, right where one is. What is the use of going off here and there to practice? And yet, if there's a slightest discrepancy, guess what? The way is as distant as heaven from earth. If there's a slightest self-referential polarization, if the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. And Yugo emphasizes that it's important, when we go through all these things, to have a teacher to guide us. A spiritual friend with whom we can share this kind of journey. Because each individual is going to have a different response to this method. And that response is going to well up and move according to his own, you know, each person's um, capacity and karmic disposition and all the things that we, that we bring with us, all my ancient, twisted karma from beginning. You know, we, we remind ourselves of this in the beginning of every service. And Dogen says, you should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding. Pursuing words and following after speech and learn the backward step that turns your light, illumination, turns your light inwardly to illuminate yourself. Body and mind of themselves will drop away and your original face will be manifest. If you want to attain suchness, you should practice suchness without delay. So what are the facets? Remember I told you earlier, the thing about concentrated mind, unified mind, and no mind. <clears throat> the way that uh, Guro was taught by Master Sheng um uh, these are the the areas that Sheng Yen roughly divided the practice. And he actually, curiously, he uses the word stages, which I think is interesting. Um, and they're not necessarily uh, sequential. Um, and I don't think that he, he means them uh, in the way that we normally think of as stages because each of each of them is infinite in depth so i'm going to talk about them as uh briefly as three strands which we weave together a strong practice so it holds us and supports us and supports our uh, care for others as we live more and more fully into the uh, the awakened reality of our being that we we come to know so let's start with concentrated mind concentrated mind unified mind no mind concentrated mind that's the first strand this is learning to sit uh, in not such a contrived way. Uh, not trying to get rid of this or that. This is what Peg invited us into the first day and relaxing. And we sit with some clarity and simplicity. There's a word in Chinese, dao um, which means just mind yourself sitting. <laughs> How simple are you willing to let this be? my <inaudible> self-fulfilling samadhi, Dogen calls it. To just sit, to just sit, not, not meditate. That's another operational activity on top of just sitting. In other words, just experiencing. You can use that if you want. Now I'm gonna be just experiencing. Not I'm going to do experience or experience. This is experiencing when you're sitting. You can feel your body. These are the things we attend to and all the sensations. You know, this is you're in your body. And the body is sitting. It means your mind is sitting your heart is sitting, your mind and body and heart are together as you're sitting. If you don't know you're sitting, then you're not following the method. Maybe it's important to say it like this. If you don't know that you're allowing the body and mind and breath to rest in silence and stillness with nothing more to do, then you're gonna get wrapped up in thinking you're doing something. This not doing is not waiting, and it isn't going inside. The truth of the matter is not hidden somewhere deep in your consciousness, and you're going to go find it and retrieve it as some hidden prize. Oh, enlightenment! Your job is not to meditate in order to find the hidden truth which will finally be revealed by this deep excavation. But instead it's to rest and relax with some vitality, sure, into the fullness of silence and illumination, which illuminates actually the truth that you're already free. This method is really subtle. It's not like just counting breaths from one to 10, which is very concrete, but it doesn't mean there's nothing to do. There's definitely something to do. Sit. Just sit. It doesn't involve necessarily contemplating, or observing thoughts, or scanning your body. Although those things are useful, and that's foundational. But, But it does involve attending to the actual act of sitting. Staying with that reality from moment to moment. And when you mind attend to your sitting, your body and mind are naturally together. Not as if you're some spectator to this process, looking from the outside. You're not necessarily cultivating a witness. That's another separate thing during sitting. That's something extra. It can be useful, but it's not the radical simplicity, the embodied immediacy of this method. So without straining and exerting some great effort, even though you're bringing yourself fully in each moment, to each moment in embodied practice. And as you do, you get to know, and you get more intimate with the habitual tendencies in your body, and tangled emotions and thoughts. You notice when your wandering thoughts arise, you notice when your body tenses up, You notice where some of the deeper emotions are enlarged in your body. And practicing like this as the body, just sitting as the body is the first strand of a more unified mind. Because what's revealed are the ways in which your body holds the way you organize experience, organize your whole life. The ways you've come to meet and understand, respond to the world is all resting as your body, it's not something in your body. It's your body, and when you're wakeful and clear in each moment, and not so caught up in wandering thoughts, everything begins to kind of settle on their own, because the discriminating mind, and it gets involved in self-referential polarizations, isn't so active. It begins to settle you stay with your body and the concentrated mind develops in this first strand of silent illumination is not just some kind of one focused concentration but an open natural clear presence that sense of the middle way which is embracing and patient it's a concentration accompanied by wisdom of silent illumination In the Unified Mind, the second strand that Shen had talked about, your field of awareness, which is at first the totality of your body, that's where we start, naturally opens to include the external environment. Like I was standing in front of the mirror trying to see myself, but when I turned, it opened. This is the Unified Mind. And as you continue the distinction about in and out fade, you're certainly aware of everything, but they don't leave so many traces. There's this refreshing, refreshment. And the environment and experience doesn't come as burdens or oppositions, it just is. Many of you have told me this in practice discussion. It's, it's so strange to meet something which I normally would have reacted to And I'm not uh, numb to it. I don't dissociate. I just notice, oh, now this. So there's no witness over here, observing things over there. There's just the seeing, just the hearing, just the experiencing. And in his description of it, Hugo says, you know, you can still hear sounds, yes. You can get up and have a drink of water. You can go to the bathroom. Are there thoughts? Yes. Everything is still there. You have thoughts as you need them to respond to the world, but they're not self-referential. Compassion naturally arises when it's needed, but it doesn't have anything to do with emotion. There's intimacy with everything around you, but it's beyond words and descriptions. When you, it's interesting, he says, when you urinate, the body, urine and toilet are not separate. Sometimes that's a problem when you're standing, but indeed, you, you all have this wonderful dialogue of present moment experience. You see clearly what needs to be done, how to respond. And there are progressively deeper aspects of this, of course, as we said. When you enter a state, and I love the way he said it, in which the environment is your sitting. You aren't sitting in the environment. The environment is your sitting. The environment may become infinite and boundless, bringing about a state of oneness of the universe those kind of you know words we hear in buddhism but this is what we're chanting in the the rogue chant if the environment is you sitting then you are not the things you're watching sitting you are this fullness of the environment The whole world is your body sitting here, not your personal body. Awareness. You realize the body of your awareness is everything. This is your physical body. So this is not exactly the realization of no self. It's the realization of the great self, the embodied inconceivable. All the flavors and colors and clarity are wonderful, and they give us a, a strong conviction of the, the flow of uh, buddha-dharma. But if you become attached to any of these strands, because they're quite lovely, then you get stuck. They all must be let go of. So you end up with this last state, which is no self, no mind. And it's like looking through a spotless window in the unified mind, that sort of the second strand. And you can see through a spotless window very well, almost like the window's not there, but it is there. It's as if the everyday self lies maybe more dormant, but subtle grasping is still there even looking through a clean window, even though it's really clean, is not the same as seeing through no window at all. Seeing through no window is one way of describing the state of awakening. And that's this third strand. There's no self or, or um, no mind. It's utter It's just clarity. It isn't me seeing through something clear. It's just clarity the mind, unmoving, because there's no self-reference. So this is silent illumination. It's the realization of quiescence and wakefulness, stillness and awareness. Traditionally we'd say, uh, Samadhi and Prajna, all of which are, are, these are just ways of describing the mind's natural state, your natural state our natural state experiencing is like dropping a huge burden from your shoulders now there's no longer me having to experience something or stop experiencing something but we all carry heavy burdens of self-attachment our troubles our habit patterns But prior to this, you you might not have known them in the same way. But once they begin to fall away, body and mind drop on their own, dropping away, as talks about, you actually recognize them in their relinquishment. And these automatic and habitual tendencies run deep, so we practice contentment. We remind ourselves of our curiosity and interest, bring ourselves to the moment in a contented way, with some confidence, not based on our feeling, but a confidence in the teachings and from our teachers and determination, a willingness to experience wakefulness again and again, glimpses and moments again and again until everything can simply rest And it's in the mind's natural state. To practice diligently without seeking results. Because there isn't some result out there. There's a resting in. And by practicing in this way, our lives gradually become integrated with wisdom and compassion as we started out with. And traces of enlightenment or ideas of awakening vanish. and we're able to offer ourselves to the world like a lighthouse of illumination, helping those who come our way, responding to the needs of the world without so much contrivance. And this is the fullness of of silent illumination. This is being just this moment. This compassionate way. So just look in this last minute. Just listen in this last minute. Just experiencing I can think I'm here, you're there. I'm here, there's a screen there. Maybe it's a good idea to click gallery view. And there's what's behind your screen and what's behind you, and what's all around you. And just resting in this spacious completeness Anything that you think is incomplete is just a projection of your ideas. And you might be completely full of grief. You might be completely and fully confused. You might be completely loving. It's completeness, but without attaching to it, there's only freshness. Refreshing every moment of just experiencing. Thank you very much. Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at apomada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much.